This is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, offering education, health care, and the opportunity to achieve career success since 1867. Information at go.wvu.edu slash forward. Welcome to the legislature today, I'm Randy Yowie. After nearly an hour of debate, the House passed House Bill 4759, which requires most business owners to check applicants' work eligibility immigration status through the E-Verify system. Emily Rice has that story. Delegates debated House Bill 4759 and its various amendments for nearly an hour. The bill aims to quell the employment of people who are in the country illegally by checking status with the federal E-Verify system. Delegate Jeff Foster, a Republican from Putnam County, presented two amendments to the bill, which he said would make the bill more small business friendly. But what my bill does is, or my amendment does, strike and insert amendment, is try to go after who's the wrongdoers. That's the goal of the amendment. Rather than making every, bus every business with 15 or more employees go through a cumbersome government process, so the First Amendment, a strike and insert, failed upon the House floor vote. The Second Amendment introduced by Foster requires employers to keep I-9s on file. This amendment has much less to do with the bills um, as like my policy decision of what should be done and more to do with can this bill operate. Because right now, as the bill is written, Section 4 is not included in the bill but the employer is defined as 15 or more employees. So section four is your records requirement for your I-9. The second amendment was accepted by a House vote. For the legislature today, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. In a Friday morning session, the Senate advanced legislation on the Postal Service, parental rights, and pro-life education. Jack Walker has that story. A controversial plan to drastically downsize West Virginia's only mail processing center, which is located in South Charleston, has brought a storm of backlash for the United States Postal Service. Now, lawmakers including Senator Eric Nelson Jr., a Republican from Kanawha County, are voicing their unwavering support for current employees. We've talked about so many economic benefits of new jobs here in the last three to four years. Well, let's talk about job retention. 800 jobs and their families and those that they touch. Senators unanimously passed Senate Resolution 16 on Friday, which expressed support for the center's preservation. The USPS will host a meeting at the Charleston Coliseum and Convention Center on January 30, where it will accept public comments on current plans. The Senate also passed a bill that aims to protect parental rights in child adoption cases. Currently, parents who lose custody in a circuit court can appeal the decision in the Supreme Court but a loophole allows new parents to adopt a child whose biological parents are still eligible to appeal. So far, the state found no instances of a child being wrongfully adopted in this way. But Senator Charles Trump, a Republican from Morgan County, said Senate Bill 318, which was passed on Friday, 
would ensure loss of custody is final before prospective parents can file for adoption. So there was no appeal or there's been an appeal and the appeal affirmed the decision below. Lastly, the Senate advanced a bill that would require high school students view a video from a pro-life nonprofit entitled Meet Baby Olivia. The video depicts an animated embryo and implies it can suck its thumb and make sounds. The bill will now advance to a third reading, which will determine whether it is sent to the House of Delegates. For the legislature today, I'm Jack Walker in Charleston. With controversy still bubbling over a proposed bill that could impose felony charges on a librarian or a museum curator for exposing obscene material to a minor, it was Library Legislation Day at the Capitol. Librarians from around the state come every year to set up displays in the Capitol Rotunda. They usually come mainly to lobby for funding. Megan Tarbett, the president of the West Virginia Library Association, says the legislature and the state of West Virginia support the library system through a grants in aid program. That amount has not changed uh, even in like the last 14 years, uh, but especially after uh, a census change. Uh, so we would ask for more money in that fund. Uh, and also, you know, we have about 156 million in deferred maintenance throughout all West Virginia libraries. So we would ask for additional funds in the facilities improvement fund uh, that the legislature did put in uh, that fund for us. Parkersburg Wood County Library Director Brian Wright says library funding has not remained on par with other publicly state-funded entities. Did you see all the inflation that we've gone through in the last few years? Guess how much our funding from the state has increased in the last 12 years? Zero. Not zero percentage, zero dollars cents money. But the buzz here today was concerns over House Bill 4654 which would remove schools, public libraries, and museums from the list of exemptions from criminal liability relating to distribution and display to minors of obscene matter. Tarbert explains that every library in the state already have policies in place to shield minors from obscene material. We call it a reconsideration of materials form. Uh, so, you know, if you find a book that, you know, you have concerns about, you can fill out that form. You can talk to your librarian about it. Usually there are three options. We can move it, remove it, or have it remain where it is. But we take, you know, all concerns seriously. Wrights was very frank on his perceived motive behind the bill and said he had an exact tally of obscene material in his library. It's an intimidation and bullying tactic because it won't stand up in court. It is not something that we hide behind in protection because we do not have obscene or pornography materials in our libraries, period. Zip. We do not. None. Zero. I will stand here and swear on the Bible that we do not. Wright says the mission of his and most libraries is connecting with the community and broadening horizons. And he says that must start not at the library, but in the home. As far as protecting children, we want to protect children and that's the reason why we give the parents all the control and let them make the decision for their child and each individual child. Because not even children, sisters and brothers, they don't always have the same requirements. So the parent's the best judge for that. Earlier this week, 14 people spoke in favor of House Bill 4654 at a public hearing, and the bill sponsor, Delegate Brandon Steele, a Republican from Raleigh County, said a number of complaints from local librarians prompted him to propose the legislation. This week, our high school correspondents take a look at the role of the lobbyist in the legislative process. Hollywood often portrays them as throwing large sums of money around, but even the smallest nonprofit organization can have a lobbyist. Coming to you from West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I am Amira Mustafa. And I am Ben Velo. 
Have you ever heard the term lobbyist and wondered what it meant? Lobbyists aren't elected officials, yet their presence at the Capitol is imperative when it comes to the life of a bill. So, what is a lobbyist and what do they do? To start, let's look at the word itself. Unlike elected officials, lobbyists work outside the chambers, meaning within certain halls, conference rooms, and sometimes lobbies. President Ulysses S. Grant is credited with popularizing the term inside of the lobby of the Willard Hotel, where he would often be approached after his work in D.C. This is important to note because it shows that lobbyists have existed and have been a major part of politics since at least the 1870s. Lobbyists play a crucial role in the political landscape. Influencing decision makers on behalf of various interest groups, these individuals work to shape policies, public opinion, legislation, and government actions. Generally, a lobbyist is hired by an interest group to advocate for or against specific policies or decisions. They can represent a wide range of clients, from corporations to nonprofits. Lobbyists can also be unpaid individuals or groups of people with a particular interest in a piece of legislation. Because lobbyists hold such an influential position with people who affect our day-to-day -day lives, it makes sense that they must register with the state of West Virginia and disclose their activities, spending, and funding sources. In West Virginia, lobbyists are required to submit a report every four months, with the first due date being January 15th. The legislative session began on January 10th and ends on March 9th, so this means that anything a lobbyist funded after January 15th does not have to be disclosed until May 15th, long after the session has ended. Lobbyists and interest groups can be essential in educating lawmakers and the public on specific issues. It is the welfare of the nation's citizens that we need to focus on. While it can be easy to complain about lobbyists, it is more important to fight for the things that keep our democracy strong. Some of these organizations have great intentions and causes, so more often than not, these lobbyists are helping the general welfare of the United States. Lobbyists have a connection from resources to direct change, but as with everything, with great power comes great responsibility. It is up to the citizens to monitor the work of lobbyists and based on this knowledge to make good economic, social, and political decisions about West Virginia's future. So join us next week where we will be focusing on controversial bills regarding students and education. For the legislature today, I'm Amira Mustafa. And I am Ben Velo. And have a great week. Former State Senator John Pat Fanning died recently. Fanning was elected to the West Virginia Senate on three different occasions. His first term began in June 1968 and lasted until 1980. He came back to the Senate in 1984 for a single term that ended in 1988. His longest time in the Senate was from 1996 to 2012. He left that position in 2012. Bob Brunner brings us this profile. John Pat Fanning served in the legislature for parts of four decades, back when the Democrats held a vast majority. But John Pat Fanning always said he represented the free state of McDowell County, something his colleagues and friends remembered. He was a great dad to me. He was so generous. Um, he was always a gentleman. So, so funny when I would come in, would always like unpack my car, um, would get up, sneak up early in the morning and go fill my car up. I know he'd always stick money in my pocket. Well, one of the things that I always uh, respected about John Pat was that he never lost his composure. He would, he would always pop out a joke or make something, uh, say something lightly to relax. A memorial service was held at Christ Church United Methodist in Charleston early this week. Some of the people who remembered Senator John Pat Fanning came to pay their last respects to a man who was really a legislative giant. He was such a wonderful mentor to me. He was quiet, he was nice, he was kind, and 
every time he voted, said, the free state of McDowell. <laughs> That's my memory of John Pat, a wonderful, nice, kind man. If you ask Senator John Pat Fanning what he did for a living, he would tell you he was a small businessman and that he cared mostly about his constituents in what he repeatedly termed the Senate. He called it the free state of McDowell County. For the legislature today, I'm Bob Brunner reporting. Lawmakers are mulling over countless tax proposals that would directly affect West Virginians and their wallets. Earlier today, I sat down with Kelly Allen, the executive director at the West Virginia Center on Budget and Policy, and Speaker of the House Roger Hanshaw, a Republican from Clay County, to talk budgets and taxes. I'll tell you what, I've had a challenge dealing with taxes all my life, except for paying them. That never seems to be a problem. I have a couple people here that are maybe a little more astute than me. I have Kelly Allen, who's the executive director of the West Virginia Center for Budget and Policy, and Roger Hanshaw, Speaker of the House, a Republican from Clay County. Thank you both for being here today. Thanks for having us. Um, let's start with this 21 and a quarter percent personal income tax cut that we all have now. But there's triggers in place to graduate this by 10% over the next three years. But state budget analysts say there may be a slight downturn in revenue surpluses over that time. So how does that all compute? Uh, Mr. Speaker, let's start with you. Sure. Well, it's, it's, so it's, it's a backward-looking mechanism, Randy. It's not a forward-looking mechanism, so we, we want to be sensitive to that. We know that some of the, the historic surpluses that we've seen over the course of the past four or five years are, are just that. They're historic surpluses. They're not things that we can build a budget around. And we've tried not to build a budget around them and use them only for one-time capital expenditures and and investments that don't grow our base budget, specifically to deal with the temporal, temporary nature of these surpluses. We, we, we know that that's going to happen, but we also want to be forward-looking in, in, in terms of putting in place a structure that, that, when prudent and if appropriate, allows us to take additional bites at the state personal income tax. That's, that's how the formula works. It's a backward-looking process. It's, it's not based on projections or or, or fanciful expectations. It's, it's based on actual numbers. So we, we do want to be sensitive to that. We agree that, that that's the prudent thing to do. Does this all sound, Kelly? Well, I think the triggers create a lot of uncertainty going forward. You know, they're automatically baked into uh, the law and lawmakers don't have to take any action for them to go into place. So after five, six years of flat budgets, we're seeing a lot of pent up budget needs, which I think we can talk about. Um, and these triggers almost say that tax cuts will come at the front of the line uh, as budget needs emerge for lawmakers in real time as they're continuing or considering, you know, pay raises for teachers, expansions of the HOPE Scholarship, Medicaid, PEIA. Uh, so we're just really concerned about the uncertainty and how they might pit tax cuts further against really important state budget needs. But as you explained, these tax cuts or these possible triggers come with a number of variables that have to fall into line, right? Well, they do. They, they, they do. But it, it is a backward looking mechanism. So it's not a forward looking mechanism. So we, we do when the triggers hit, they hit based upon collections and revenue okay, from okay, the okay. previous year. Right. So as long as the state's on a positive trajectory, those triggers are satisfied. So we, we want to be sensitive to the needs of, of continued investment in our state's physical infrastructure, our, the, the salary of our workers, compensation for our, our, our school teachers and school service personnel, members of the state police. All of our state workers and, and, and others are, are likely to be acted on, even this year, while we're in an environment in which we can do it. So all, all those things are important to us. We want to be sure we are doing the prudent thing here. There's three Governor Justice proposed tax breaks to combine to about $50 million. Let's take them one at a time. 
The proposal for exempting Social Security income from personal income taxes now, include, now will include everybody, not just the low and middle income folks. Governor Justice says 50,000 50, households would be affected. Let's take me, for example. Mm -hmm. I'm 70 years old. I've been collecting Social Security now for three and a half years. My financial advisor says to put 10% of that aside every year to pay my federal and state taxes. That's a good chunk of change out of my pocket that I could be spending on something else. Will this help me? Well, we agree with that. We agree that there, that's a chunk of change that we'd like for you to, to not have to pay to the state. We'd like for you to be able to spend that and pay it into the economy. I do expect that we'll see movement on that bill in the House. What do you think on that? Well, I think considering more tax cuts when the last round of tax cuts hasn't even been fully enacted, uh, the property tax rebates from last year's tax cuts won't hit the budget until fiscal year 2025. I think those are expected to cost about another $200 million a year. Uh, and then again, we've got these triggers really kind of hanging over our heads. So it is really concerning to consider more tax cuts before we've seen the full impact of, of last year's. And I'd also say, you know, that the tax cuts that the governor proposed do come with opportunity costs. You know, we've heard things like our home health workers that care for our seniors as they age need a raise. That would cost about $50 million. So, um, you know, one thing that we can do comes at the cost of something else. So it's just really important to think of those services that benefit all seniors. For the seniors collecting Social Security, there's many of them that, that don't have a job right now or have to get a part-time job as a greeter and Walmart or something like that. So that cut would really help them, right? I would guess most of those folks are probably already covered by the existing Social Security exemption. Um, I think this would cover about 10% of seniors. I think that's right. Then there's a credit equal to about 50% of the allowable child and dependent care credit. Mm -hmm. Explain that in layman's terms and who it helps. So child, child care is, is one of the, the absolute pillars of the state's overall strategy for economic development, Randy. The, the, for the this year, yes. Absolutely. The number one ask of, of West Virginia's business organizations and, and the largest business advocacy organization in West Virginia for two consecutive sessions now has not been tax cuts. It has not been regulatory reform. It's not been a change to the judicial structure. It's been child care. It's been new ways to care for the children of workers when the workers go off to fill the job opportunities that we're recruiting to West Virginia. This is a big deal for us. It's, it's, it's one of those rare moments in which nearly everybody is in agreement that this is something that needs to be done. We we like proposals that make it easier for people to take advantage of child care and for child care facilities and child care providers to actually start offering or, ex or expand the scope of their service. So who would it help? It would help those men and women and those workers out here in the state who are actually paying a bill each month to have someone care for their children while they're at work filling jobs in West Virginia. And I imagine the center would be aligned on this one. We agree that child care is a top priority. Um, you know, in the state budget, we're actually spending about half of what we spent on child care subsidies as we did a decade ago. So we think it's really important to, to address more funding for child care. Now, child care tax credits require that a family can afford the cost of child care up front and be reimbursed for it. Uh, in some cases, it might not make it to the lowest income households. Um, so we just really want to see boosted child care subsidies that can hit all families in all 55 counties. Um, and we'd really like to see the bill that would pay child care providers based on enrollment over attendance to really stabilize our providers who uh, have lost federal COVID relief funding that was keeping them afloat. Are and we, we think that bill may we have merit. That we've, at, we, we've actually begun to consider that bill in a package of others right Great. now. That There's there's a small work group of, of delegates and senators working with the executive branch right now on 
what we hope to be a full package of child care related bills that we move on in the second third of the session. This gentleman is good at anticipating a question, <laughs> I'll tell you that. Um, finally, the senior citizen property tax credit. All right for seniors. Um, seniors with homestead property taxes and federal adjusted gross income below 20% of the federal poverty guideline you get increases by 50% and expand eligibility by 15%. How does this shake out in layman's terms? So this is one that, that we were not involved in crafting with the executive branch prior to the session. So we're still actually studying this particular proposal and, and ascertaining whether it's one that we'll move on this year. Thoughts on this one? I would just again urge caution. Tax credits, tax cuts all come at the cost of revenue that pays for services that already benefit seniors, uh, low income, middle income, and high income seniors. And it's you know really important to make sure that we can serve all families um, and that tax cuts and tax credits don't cost, come at the ability of the state budget to provide needed services. Basically dollars that are diverted for tax cuts then become not available to pay for things like, like bolstering first responders, underfunded schools. I mean, how do you reconcile this when you look at it as a bill? Well, to be clear, Randy, every single program that we've just discussed, including the, including those in this program, are all special revenue programs that come from dedicated line items in the budget. So the single largest funding source for senior programs in West Virginia is actually lottery funding. So the, the lottery funding is a special revenue mechanism outside the scope of anything we're talking about. Okay. Um, I think we were talking about some programs that fall out of general revenue, things like public education. You know, we've been talking a lot about school discipline, and I've been uh, looking up some figures for that. And we've got entire school districts that don't have a social worker in the whole school district or a school psychologist. So we have a lot of needs in our public schools um, and other programs that do come out of general revenue that serve our families. A lot of pent-up needs after five years of flat budgets. And um, those things, in our opinion, should come first. Uh, before tax cuts, before reducing available revenues. But we see, as I look at the bills, I see bills that almost answer all of those problems that you talked about in one form or another on the either Senate or House side. Well, I think what remains to be seen if the, is if those make it through finance committees. Um, there are a lot of good ideas, a lot of really important ideas in our committees, but you know, if we're committed to a flat budget, that means every new bill has to come at the cost of something else. So we, you know, it remains to be seen what will make it across the finish line. Big tax credits, when we see X amount of money that's going to, to Nucor or Form Energy, uh, how do we make sure that we're going to make sure that the trade-off is going to be equal when it comes to the revenue and the benefit for the citizenry that we get back from giving cuts to those corporations? Sure, Randy. Nucor is a publicly traded company. They're a Fortune 100 entity. Nucor's average salary last year topped $140,000. I'll, I'll take I'll take every one of those jobs we can recruit to West Virginia every day of the week. Um, and you were t we were talking a little bit earlier about tax credits and a balance there. I mean, economic development subsidies. There's a lot of research around them showing if they give you the bang for your buck, that's promised. Um, one thing we are seeing a lot, I think, is a lot of the economic development. Uh, announcements being concentrated in border counties and, and a few counties. Um, so what we'd like to see are strings attached that make sure that we're hiring West Virginia workers, that these are good wages, um, and also want to balance those uh, economic incentives with the understanding that there are you know, 45, 46 counties that aren't seeing that growth, that need job investments, that need job training, that need infrastructure to make sure that they can grow along with our border counties. So amen to that. We, right. we couldn't if, possibly if, if agree not, more. If I'm not mistaken, there are mechanisms available to try to get job development with, the, with land preparation, with so on and so forth, in, in other counties besides border counties. Well, there are. The Western New Jobs Act provides the definition of a local worker as anyone from any of the 55 counties of West Virginia plus a defined, a defined 
line radius outside this, of the borders of West Virginia. But, but the, the point here is absolutely right, and that is that we've got an obligation to make sure we're doing economic development in all 55 counties of the state. We, we couldn't possibly agree more with that. Uh, I live in Clay County, right smack dab in the middle of West Virginia. It's a mountainous county. We are one of the counties that, that felt the impact of, of, a, of a coal mine closure. I, I can tell you the day that that happened in Clay County because life fundamentally changed for all of us. We, we do need to take every step we can to get some of those investments into the other counties of West Virginia outside just the borders. That point's absolutely correct. And to bring it back, I believe Clay County has one child care center right now. And, you know, we know child care accessibility is so related to job growth. It's a real problem. Uh, and, you know, like we said before. We, we fully agree with that. It's a real problem. These solutions need to focus on all 55 counties. We definitely agree about that. When we talk about coal mine closures, where does severance tax stand in terms of revenue? Is, is it even figured into the budget now? Because coal is down, gas and oil is up, but the market is glutted. Uh, help me make sense of how severance tax plays into state budgeting. Well, it'll always be figured into the budget in some way. The trick for us is, is weaning West Virginia away from relying on severance tax for base budget items. Because, for exactly the reason you just said, Randy, severance is maybe the most cyclical and, 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 and suffers from the swinging pendulum of revenue and pricing more than maybe any other component of the state budget. So we're, we're transitioning to a place now in, where we, in which we use severance or think about severance from a, from a capital expenditures budget perspective rather than for ongoing expenditures. Any thought on severance tax? I mean, I think we agree about that. Um, you know, last year's tax cuts, I think 40% of the surplus last year was uh, severance tax revenues. We think, you know, that was baked a little bit into the momentum around the tax cut, but agree that it's important um, to, to not hinge either permanent tax cuts or permanent spending on the severance tax. We were big supporters of the future fund, socking away some of that severance tax revenue to help us diversify our economy uh, and, and uh, to be around after the resources are long gone. We just got a minute left. All this pandemic funding, is that pretty much dried up? Uh, no, it isn't. So what we've what we have received and what we have in hand has largely dried up, but much of it has been staged over a course of years. So the, if you think about pandemic funding per se, that that was that, that that was to be allocated to states directly as a result of coronavirus, I think the answer is yes. But Randy realized during the course of that epidemic, that that pandemic, West Virginia. Right in the middle of that was the largest infrastructure bill ever enacted by the United States of America. We're expected to receive another infusion of several billion dollars in infrastructure funds over the course of the next few years. Well, we'll have to leave it at that. Kelly Allen, Roger Hanshaw, thanks for being here today. You guys have a good weekend. Thank thanks. you. I'm Randy Yoey. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, offering education, health care, and the opportunity to achieve career success since 1867. Information at go.wvu.edu slash forward.